Well, I'd like to take you back in time for just a little bit to the 1970s. So in the 19, yeah, there you go. Someone's happy. So in the 1970s, uh, they were, the U.S. was getting ready for the Olympic Games in Lake Placid, New York. And the Olympic hockey team was getting ready to try and win a medal in hockey. Now, if you don't remember the 1970s, then let me give you a little history lesson. The U.S. hockey team at that point was the laughing stock of world sports. The last time America had won a gold medal in hockey was 1960. Since then, they hadn't been very good, hadn't won very many games. Most teams around the world beat up on them pretty good. So in, for the 1980 games, especially because the Olympics were in America, the Olympic Committee was determined to figure out how they could help their hockey team here in the States win the gold medal. And at that point in history, it was the Soviet hockey team that was dominant. They could outskate anybody. They could score more than anybody else. They seemed like superhumans. They didn't seem like they ever got tired. They just kept like, seemed like they could go and go and go and like they were bigger than everybody else, stronger than everybody else, faster than everybody else. They were pretty intimidating. So the U.S. Hockey Committee decided to hire Coach Herb Brooks to coach the Olympic team for the 1980 Olympic Games. And you may be familiar with Herb's story in the movie Miracle that tells about the 1980 Olympic hockey team. And Herb's plan was to coach this team differently than anybody else because he had one simple coaching philosophy. And that was every athlete has greatness in them. You just have to drag it out of them. That was his coaching philosophy. And so during tryouts, he already begun to do something very different than every other coach before him. Usually, they would go through and they would just pick the best hockey players, just the best athletes. They would pick the top however many guys and put them on a hockey team. And Herb decided that's not going to work for this system. That's not how we'll beat the Soviets. So instead, he watched tryouts for about a day, day and a half. And instead of picking just the best hockey players on the ice, instead, he picked the guys with the right value and character that he needed. He looked for the guys that he could push and push and push. And that's the system he implemented. If you've seen the movie Miracle, then you, you've kind of seen some moments where you could firsthand witness how Coach Brooks would push his players. He made practices longer and more intense than anybody else had coached these guys before because he knew to win this gold medal, we've got to be better conditioned than, than the Soviets. We've got to push these guys harder than anybody else to get the greatness out of them because they had their own pride, their own selfishness, and they also had their own rivalries. They all played for competing college teams, and so he had to bring all these rivals and make them play together. So he pushed them harder than anybody else. One example, which they put in the movie Miracle, is after one friendly game of hockey, the guys weren't, uh, didn't seem all that interested or concerned with the game, they didn't play very well, didn't try very hard, and so Coach Brooks got them all out on the ice after the game, made them line up on one goal line and sprint to the other side, back and forth, back and forth, doing sprints on the ice until the guys were collapsing and throwing up. And one of the, like, the caretaker for that arena in that other country like, started turning off the lights and locking up because he wanted to go home. So he made those guys run for hours to make the point that you're going to fight hard. He was going to get that greatness out of them no matter what it took. 
And of course, if you've seen the movie, you know it worked. And if you were around in 1980, you know it worked because you saw it live as the U.S. beat the Soviets in the semifinals and then went on to win the gold medal in the 1980 Olympic Games. And here's the thing. The U.S. soccer team after 1980 wasn't so great again. They didn't win another medal until 2002 when guess who got hired to be the coach again? Coach Herb Brooks. He came back and did it a second time. And that similar philosophy that Coach Brooks had of there's greatness in every athlete, you just got to drag it out of them, get it past their own pride and their own selfishness. That's a little bit of what John's going to talk to us about this morning. He knows there's greatness in each of us. It's just got to get pulled out a little bit. So if you want to turn to John chapter 2, verse 3, or go there in your, in your device, that's where we're going to be this morning. And here's how John starts this passage off. He says, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Now that may be one of the most important few verses John has ever written. So much of 1 John really centers around these few verses. He's going to unpack it. He's going to explain it. It has so much with what he experienced about Jesus. But there's a problem in these few verses that we hit pretty quickly. Because uh, here's the thing. I know me, and I know that I really want to live like Jesus. I want to live up to the bar. But I also know I don't always do that. I fall short some days. I let my selfishness or my pride or whatever it is get in the way of me living like Jesus. And John doesn't pull any punches. And he very clearly says, if you claim to follow Jesus, but you don't live like Jesus, you're a liar. So I was reading that this week and realized John called me a liar. And I have a feeling there might be a few of you in the room who John also just called a liar this morning. And that probably doesn't feel too good to be called a liar. Because let's face it, we want to live like Jesus, but we fall short and we struggle and it doesn't always go so well. And we're just like, why can't I do better? Why can't I live like Jesus? What's going on? Because there's a struggle. So I was thinking about that this week. Why is it so hard to live like Jesus? What seems to be the problems and the challenges there? So the first thing I thought about is there, kind of in verse, kind of thinking through verse three, where John, he cares a lot about connection over production. He cares more about our relationship with God than what we produce. But we live in a world and we live in a culture that overvalues production. We care so much about what you can do, not so much who you are. And so, I mean, just think about the themes we award and applaud. When you get good grades, if you make more sales than somebody else, you work longer hours, like that, that's what we celebrate. We celebrate that you won the game, not just that you showed up and played the game. So we award and applaud when we produce something, when we get something done, we accomplish a goal, we meet an objective. That's what gets accomplished. A lot of times we celebrate the person who goes in and works 70, 80 hour works, work weeks, even if they're sacrificing their family at home, right? Very often the, you know, the dad who's home every night for dinner or the mom who's home every night for dinner or the son who visits his aging mom in the nursing home doesn't get much applause, doesn't get a lot of notice. And we kind of learn 
how to live based on where all the applause comes from. And we start to do certain things because that's where we get awarded, that's where we get celebrated. And we kind of build this uh, to-do list sort of life. And the problem is we, we take that and we put that in our faith with God as well. We kind of turn God into a chore list, a list of to-dos. I mean, th- think of it this way. Think of the difference of saying, I have to do something versus I get to do something, right? If you say, I have to go to the grocery store, it's because you know you need, like, you need food, like you need groceries, you need to eat, you need to go to the grocery store. But it's different when you say, I get to do something. So, I mean, just imagine this for a minute. Imagine you could eavesdrop in on like a middle school or maybe like an early high school relationship just getting started. And you've got this young, this young boy who's, he just, he comes home one day, he's like, oh, I have to text this girl. She's really pretty. She's cute. I'd love to go on a date with her, but oh, I've got to text her. You'd think, what, what's wrong with you? You should be saying, I get to text her. This is so great. She's actually texting me back. This is wonderful. She didn't friend zone me. This is great. That's what you would expect to get. There's a difference between I have to and I get to. I have to turns things into a chore and a job to get done. I get to shows there's excitement, there's a relationship there, right? I mean, imagine if you had, you know, with your, if you're married, if you had to get up and with your spouse, write a to-do list every day of, okay, spend time with spouse. Say, good morning, honey. Like, probably that would get you in some trouble if somebody else saw the to-do list, right? That's not going to go over very well. And said, it's no, I get to spend time with them, right? It's I get to do these things. The problem is we've taken our production to-do list kind of life and we've put that on God. We're like, I have to read my Bible, check. I have to pray, check. I have to serve somebody, check. I have to go to church, check. And if you've done that, you know that doesn't produce a lot of uh, warm, fuzzy feelings. It doesn't really build a good relationship. It becomes, ah, I have to do this. It becomes a chore, And John's not so concerned about us turning God into a chore. He wants us to make God something that we have a relationship with him, not just a chore. So it's the language shift of, I get to read my Bible. I get to go to church. I get to be part of a small group. I get to serve somebody. That's kind of the difference that John is trying to make. He's saying what what really matters with obedience with God is you get to do these things. You have a relationship and your obedience flows from your relationship, your production comes from your connection to God. So I thought maybe that's, maybe that's our problem. We just, we, we live in a world that applauds what we do. And sometimes with God, it's hard to get those accomplishments. It's hard to live like Jesus because oftentimes living like Jesus doesn't get you a lot of applause. You don't always get awarded for that. Oftentimes it means you come in last. Like that's what it can look like. And so maybe that's the problem. But maybe it's a little deeper than that. Maybe it's just a little deeper. You know, I just, because if you just start to think about how Jesus lived and you start reading through the gospels, it's pretty quick. You go, that's really hard. I don't know if I can do all of that or live up to all of that. So I just kind of went through the gospels and started making a list. So here's some things I just wrote down. So Jesus relied on God for everything. He wasn't afraid to be around the sickest people and spend time with them. He called the poor in spirit, those who grieve, the meek, righteous, merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, and persecuted the blessed ones. He rejected violence. He stuck to his promises. He loved his enemies. He fasted. He was homeless for part of his life and lived in poverty for the rest of it. He ate dinner with people that everybody else ignored. He loved kids. He spoke courage into the discourage. He obeyed God's plan. No matter how bad it was, he rested on the Sabbath. He was humble. He paid his taxes. He cried when his best friend died. 
He taught in simple language. He didn't try to impress anybody. He was interruptible. He relied on the Holy Spirit's power. You, you get the idea. I could go on. We could be here all day and just go on and on and on. And you start to make that list, and, you, and there might be some things you go, well, I'm pretty good at that. Not, I, I could do that. And other things you go, I don't even know if on my best day I could do that, nor do I really want to do that. And so it, the problem is, the standard to live like Jesus, it's just a really high bar. How on earth is anybody supposed to do that? Especially like all the time, how are we supposed to do that? Because it's just hard. But why is it so hard to live like Jesus? Well, I mean, I suppose the simple answer is it's because of our sin. It's just because we want to live like us. We don't want to live like Jesus. We'd kind of rather live like us. Because sometimes living like us, it's fun. It's enjoyable. It's a whole lot easier to do that than to live like Jesus. Because, you know, it's just hard. But maybe it's even deeper than that. Maybe if we were really honest with ourselves, maybe the reason we don't want to live like Jesus is because it's just going to cost us too much. It's just going to cost too much. I mean, think about it. Jesus, living like himself, got him killed, right? Like, he didn't get a parade. He was killed because of how he lived. And we probably, if we're really honest, deep down think, living like Jesus isn't just hard. It's a place I don't really think I want to go to. Like, do I really want to go all that way? I don't know, because it got Jesus killed. I mean, think about it. Jesus, he wasn't religious enough for the Jews because they had turned their faith in God, their relationship with God into a to-do list, and they perfected it. They had every rule lined out. How far can you walk every day? Like, how, how much food do you cook on the Sabbath? Like, every kind of sin, here's exactly how you deal with all. Like, they had it all mapped out. They had the perfect to-do list. And Jesus rebelled against that to-do list because he's like, no, you have a relationship with God. God is not a chore. It's not something you do. It's a person you get to know. So he rebelled against that, and that made them very angry. But on the other hand, he didn't really fit in with the Romans because the Romans, they're, they're used to power and force. They didn't have much of a checklist, but they did have one rule. You keep the peace. And so when the Jews bring Jesus to Pilate and want to kill him, Pilate's hands are tied. Jesus hasn't broken any laws, but Jesus also won't defend himself or summon the army of angels he has at his disposal to save himself or command the Jews to be quiet or anything. And Pilate's a little not sure what to do with this man that everybody says has so much power, but he's not using it. Rome gets power. They don't get a man who's so humble he won't use his power. And so to keep his job, Pilate has no choice. He has to send Jesus to the cross. Because Jesus won't defend himself. He had, Jesus could have made a great case. Great legal case could have freed himself. He didn't. Jesus had the power to, to save himself from that whole situation. He could have taken himself off the cross, and he didn't. So Jesus didn't fit in with the Jews. He didn't quite fit in with the Romans. He just was kind of in this weird middle ground, and no one knew what to do with him. And deep down, that might be part of why it just costs a lot to live like Jesus, because you have to live in this middle ground where there's people who on every side that's not going to like you. You're not angry enough for some people. You're not powerful enough. You don't demand enough. But you're also not quite as nice as, like, everybody just wants you to go along with the flow, and you're not going to do that either. And it's just this weird in-between. And the truth is, we, we might live just enough like Jesus to get by, just enough so it helps us out, just enough so we can kind of fit in, just enough so we, don't, we feel good enough and we don't have to feel too guilty when we read the Bible. 
We do just enough like Jesus to get by. But we, if we're honest, we don't really live all the way like Jesus. We kind of stop short. So in 1978, maybe you've heard of this book, a guy named Michael Hart wrote this book called The Top 100. And the subtitle is A Ranking of the Most Influential Persons in History. Now, it was written back in 1978 and reprinted in 92. So keep in mind, this list has not been updated since 1992. And so just for a minute, just think to yourself, who would your top 10 people be back in 92? Who might you put in your top 10 list? Who might be your number one pick? Now, if you pick Jesus, you're wrong. He didn't put Jesus number one. In fact, he didn't put Jesus number two. He ranked Jesus number three. And I thought that was interesting. So I actually found where he explained in his book why he put Jesus number three. So let me read you what Michael Hart says about ranking Jesus. He said, now these ideas which were not a part of the Judaism of Jesus' day, nor of most other religions, are surely among the most remarkable and original ethical ideas ever presented. If they were widely followed, I would have had no hesitation in placing Jesus first in this book. But the truth is that they are not widely followed. In fact, they are not even generally accepted. Most Christians consider the injunction to love your enemy as, at most, an ideal which might be realized in some perfect world, but one which is not a reasonable guide to conduct in the actual world we live in. We do not normally practice it, do not expect others to practice it, and do not teach our children to practice it. Jesus' most distinctive teaching, therefore, remains an intriguing but basically untried suggestion. In other words, Hart put Jesus third because we don't live like him. He decided if people actually lived like Jesus, if they did what he said, no problem. Obviously, Jesus is the number one person, most influential person in the world. That would be enough to start a revolution. But he says, no, it's just Jesus had great ideas, but no one really does it. I mean, just imagine what our world would be like if we could really do that. You know, that, that core teaching of Jesus to love your enemies. I mean, even when Jesus was going through his trial and headed to the cross, when he was being crucified, he said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they are doing. The Jews weren't Jesus' enemy. The Romans weren't his enemy. Pilate, when he was on trial, wasn't his enemy. The people in the crowd weren't his enemy, were not his enemy. Jesus had one enemy, sin and darkness and the father of all lies, Satan. That was his enemy. But unfortunately today, I think we've probably made the bar way too low to make somebody your enemy. Like it doesn't take much anymore to make somebody your enemy. And that just causes all kinds of problems. It just makes it really hard for us to take that, that final step and go all the way and live like Jesus because we just kind of like to live like ourselves. But I think there's hope. I think John knows we can do it. And here's a clue. He says in verse seven, here's how he, he writes, dear friends, I am not writing you a new commandment, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message that you have heard. Yet, I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. It's an old command, because God has always been a God of light and love. Even in all those weird Old Testament passages we don't know what to do with, every law is a picture of God's heart. And when we don't get the law, 
It's just because there's some piece of history or culture we don't quite understand, and we're missing how God is showing love in that time and that place. But everything God did, so that's why it's an old message. Everything God's done has always been about love. But it's a new command because Jesus came and personified God's love. He put it into action. He walked with us. He showed us exactly what it looks like, and he raised it to a whole new standard. So it's an old command, and it's a new command. But I don't want you to miss this. In verse 8, where he says, I'm writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in Jesus and, and don't miss this, and in you. In you. John knows that the way people will see this God of light, the God of love, is in us. And he actually, he doesn't say, if you work hard enough, you'll get there. He says, no, it's right now in you. You can live like Jesus right now because it's in you. Because you're made in God's image. You can't help but live like Jesus. He made you for it. He gave you the Holy Spirit to help you live that out. So how do we get through those, those troubles, those problems, the challenges that we have to make this come to life? Well, I actually don't think I have to convince you too hard of that. Because here's the deal. If you've ever been treated like Jesus would treat you, or if you've ever lived like Jesus... There's just something deep in you that knows that's true, that know that that is good, and that's just something about that is right. Like, you've felt it. You've known it. Like, I don't have to describe it to you because you've, you've experienced it. When somebody takes the time to listen to your story, when somebody forgives you when you know you don't deserve it, when somebody gives you a second chance, when somebody loves you when you just feel like you've broken their trust, you know Something about that is right and good in the way things are supposed to be. And the upside down nature of the world is Jesus said, whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Because here's the deal. John goes on to talk about we live in darkness and light. And if you want to live in light, you've got to love each other. But here's, here's the challenge, right? We've kind of gotten used to living in darkness. So think about this. When you're about to go to sleep at night and you turn all the lights off, at first, you can't really see anything. Like, you know, you're going to stumble around. You can't see anything. Your eyes, you know, are straining through the darkness. But give yourself a few minutes and your eyes will adjust and you'll be able to kind of see. And you could probably get up in the middle of the night and find your way to the kitchen to get a glass of water or make yourself a sandwich or whatever you want to do it to in the morning. And you could find your way around. And you also know how your house is set up. So you know to avoid the, the, you know, the table that's here and the couch that's here. Like, you know where to go. And that's the way our world is. We've all learned how to live in darkness. We've learned where people applaud us and praise us. We've learned when, when certain actions get things done. We've seen it. The problem is we've gotten used to darkness. And John says, you've got to get out of that. Don't let your eyes adjust to the darkness. Because we've learned from our world that anger gets things done or demanding something, or making the world revolve around you. We've been taught a world where that seems to work. And it does for a little while, but on the inside, it's slowly killing yourself. And there's something in you that knows this isn't right. Like, this is not who I am. Something deep down in you knows this isn't the way it's supposed to be. In the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis, one of the first of the Chronicles of Narnia books, uh, Lewis has this quote where the mighty lion Aslan, he goes and he sacrifices himself to save Narnia, and he comes back to life because, spoiler alert, if you've never read the books, Aslan represents Jesus, and it's all about the Christian life. 
But when Aslan comes back to life, two of the main characters ask him how any of this happened. And here's what he says, talking about the villain in the story. He says, the witch knew the deep magic. There is a magic deeper still, which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked back a little further into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. And you know exactly what Lewis is talking about. You know exactly what that deeper magic is. Because it's any time the gospel breaks through, it's any time God's will breaks into our life, you know it because you just sense it. And maybe that's what John is just getting at, that there's something even deeper, even more true, and that is Jesus living in us. It's the power of the Holy Spirit pulling that Jesus in us out into the world where it can be seen. So what do you do? Well, it's pretty hard. Because the challenge is you've got to like continually die to yourself, which is not easy. No one likes to do that. But it might look like, well, if you go back to the have to and the get to, this is what it might look like. If you've, you know, if, especially if you've been married for very long, you've, you've probably experienced this to be true. There are days where it's easy to say, I get to. It's fun. It's wonderful. It's great. But you have those days where it turns into, I have to. You don't, you know, you don't wake up every morning and the sun is shining and the birds are chirping. Everything is great. Your hair is perfectly in order and you're ready to get, go out the door and start your day. It's, I have to do this. I have to go to church. I have to talk to my spouse, but I'm really mad at them right now and don't want to. Or, or I have to get the kids to school and none of them are ready. Some days, this is fun. This life is an adventure. And other days, what is going on? Would somebody help me here? You know, it's just different. But you've know that eventually when you get out of those I get to days and you get into the have to's, if you fight through the have to's long enough, if you work through them, eventually your heart will come around and you'll come out the other side and you'll get back to I get to. And actually, if you do that cycle enough, your love will actually grow deeper and stronger than the cute little middle school relationship just getting started out with texting and going to the movies or whatever. If you go through that cycle long enough or you do that cycle enough with God or with your friends, you find a relationship that's far deeper than the cutesy little middle school stuff. So here's what you do. You push through the have-to days. If you push through the have-to days with God, the days where you just feel like, I have to read my Bible. I have to pray. I have to go to church. I have to get to small group. I have to serve somebody. If you push through the have-tos, your heart will come around to the get-tos. And the Jesus that God created who lives inside of every one of us, that little part of us that God put inside of us through the Holy Spirit that's his son, the image of him in us, it'll come out, and it'll come out stronger than the last time around. So push through those have-to moments for the get-to moments because it'll take you somewhere deeper than you've ever been before. I think this is what John sees in us. He knows we can do it, and he knows the world will see that in us, and that will make the difference. Because we live in a world that really they need to see Jesus. They need to see Jesus in us. They need to see, and it might look like you go into work and instead of telling everybody what to do, you just, you stop and you just listen to your coworkers. Maybe it's just taking the time to hear their story, hear what's going on at home. Maybe it's as simple as letting yourself be interrupted by the homeless guy. Instead of just, here's some money, say, 
hey, I'm on my way to lunch. Do you want to come with me? Maybe it's as different as that one day you go home and you're so frustrated and you want everybody to serve you, you just say, okay, I'm going to serve them instead. And that's hard and that's tough. You've got to swallow your pride and your selfishness and your own interests. But you'll find Jesus come out a little bit more. And if you just keep doing that, a little more Jesus will just keep showing up. Because we all know what happens when Jesus shows up. Death begins to roll backwards. And we begin to see the world in a totally different kind of way. So as we get ready here for our time of invitation, and we kind of wrap up our time worshiping together with this next psalm, I don't invite anyone in here who, you know, if Jesus is new to you, you're like, that's interesting, that sounds really good, but I don't know what to do about it. I don't know what my next step is. I'll be down front. I'd love to talk to you about what, what your next step might look like in following Jesus. And if you're here and it's, maybe it's just been a tough week, it's been, it's been a struggle, and you need some prayer or some encouragement, again, I'll be down front. I'd love to talk with you about it. Because we live in a world that needs Jesus now, maybe more than ever. And they will see it in us. We know we want to live like Jesus. We absolutely know we can do it. But the challenge is overcoming those things that hold us back. And John knows you've got it. It's in you. Just let God do his work and pull it out. So with that, will you pray with me? God, I thank you so much for the life of Jesus and that he showed us exactly how to live, exactly how to be ourselves. Uh, and I pray that you would help all of us to learn how we can better live like you, how we can let uh, the image of you that you curated us with come out a little more every day. And so, Father, I pray over those have-to moments that you'd fight through those with us and get us to those get-to moments, that you'd get us to the other side where there's such joy in our relationship with you. And help us to see those moments and hear your voice when there's an opportunity, whether it's at work or at school or just out about in the community or at Walmart or Kroger, wherever it is, where we can step in and be like you to show somebody your love. Father, we love you. It's your son's name that I pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. Each week we gather for worship on the corner of Broadway and Lebanon Avenue. And we're honored to have you listening in. If you'd like to learn more about joining us in person, you can find out details at campbellsvillechristianchurch.com or on Facebook or Instagram.